This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the first MLB.com StatCast Podcast of 2016. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Thanks for joining us again. Whenever possible on this show, we like to talk to people inside the game and really get their take on what kind of stats they're using to evaluate players, how public stats may differ from private stats. So today I'm very excited to have with us Kevin Goldstein, Director of Pro Scouting for the Houston Astros. Kevin, how are you today? I'm doing good, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. For people who may not necessarily know what a Director of Pro Scouting does, give us a quick overview of like what's the day in the life of Kevin Goldstein. That's a good question. Uh, I, I think one of the things I like best about my job is that it changes every day, but I think it's important that, to note that if you gathered the other 29 director of pro scouting or, or their equivalents with the other clubs and asked them what their job was, I think you probably end up with 30 different answers. But, uh, you know, the, the, the short version of the bullet point is that I head up our pro scouting departments. That involves, you know, staffing our department, defining our coverage, uh, defining how our reports are. Uh, how our reports are used, uh, working with our reports to combine them with uh, that from our research and development folks. Uh, but at the same time, um, Jeff Luno, our GM and, and my boss, is, is not a really big fan of, of silos. And so he gets out and, and he, he, he has people doing things outside the department as well. He sees all of us as, as kind of baseball consultants to him for his decision making. So, you know, for example, this spring with, with all those draft picks and all the money we had to spend in the draft, uh, I got out most of the spring seeing amateur players. Uh, you know, in, in about three weeks, I'll be going to Dominican to see 15-year-old international free agents that are going to be eligible to sign this summer. Uh, and uh, at the winter meetings, as I was, you know, along with a good number of people in the room, and, and they're looking at Jeff saying, you know, yes, you should do that. No, you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should do it this way. And and just kind of being a, a general baseball consultant to Jeff as he makes the decision. So when you talk about the reports you're putting together, kind of in the public sphere, the the, inter, the external metrics people use, you know, weighted runs created plus, wins above replacement, that sort of thing. I'm sure that you and every other team has their own proprietary metrics, but I'm curious, do you ever look at the public stuff? And if so, does it really jive at all, or is it kind of way off from what you guys are looking at? Um, I think there's a little bit of both. I think there's stuff in the public that you see that does jive. Uh, at the same time, there's stuff that, that we do that I look at and that, that blows me away. And I go, man, if people saw this, they would freak out <laughs> how cool this is. Um, you know, but obviously, it, it, it's, you know, we're in the business of, of trying to get a competitive edge, so it's not out there. But there's still plenty of, of public stats that, that we look at and that, we, that are important to us. And, uh, you know, not everything is just, you know, we don't think we can, you know, build a better mousetrap at, at every level and every angle. Well, we're trying yeah, to. Oh, we, sorry. we do use a lot of a lot of public stuff, certainly. Yeah, we're we're trying to freak people out a little bit here too with uh, Statcast, obviously. And uh, yeah, and then Statcast is, is, is it's something we're really excited about. It's, it's funny how much of the challenge is like just how to store that much data or parse that much data because there's an incredible amount. But I mean, I can tell you right now, we we 
decisions have been made that involve some sort of StatCast data as well. And most famously with your team, uh, Colin McHugh, there's definitely stories about the spin rate on his curveball. But I'm curious, when you look at something that's written about StatCast now, maybe we're discovering you know, what spin rate on a fastball, high or low means. Do you look at it and go, oh, they've caught up to where we were three or four years ago? <laughs> <laughs> yes, in some ways. Yes, in some ways. Now, there, there are things that that's, uh, you know, we see and we go, yeah, we, we've been there, done that. And I think there are things that we see and we go, that's exciting. And there's 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 so much of the statcast data to be honest with you, Mike. That you know we're we're still trying to figure out um, not what it is, but how we can kind of parse it and what we can get out of it. Are there things that we're missing from this data that would really help us uh, in analyzing players? And, and I think that's one of the really exciting things about it. I'm curious, how much of this are you able to apply to your minor league system? I mean, I know the the technology is not in every minor league park, but are, are, is there some way you're able to track, say, you know, spin rate, route efficiency, that sort of stuff for your minor leaguers? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we we use a TrackMan system, but we we have a TrackMan installed at, at all of our affiliates, uh, top to bottom. So everything from the big league park in Houston, uh, all the way down to uh, Georgia Dominion Complex. You know, we have we have we have the TrackMan at every complex at every stadium that that we have a team at. So it is something that's important to us, and so we have data from all of our, our home games, at the very least, uh, from all the way from the Dominican Summer League up to the big league. Now, when you're talking uh, directly to prospects, you know, some of them, like you said, are, are teenagers, how much do you bring them in on this? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, do they know you don't care so much about batting average and earned run average? They know you maybe you're looking at a weighted runs created or a spin rate or something like that. Is there an educational system they have to go through to kind of learn that with the Astros? You know, it, it, it's interesting, and, and it, it, the, the thing is, do you – and this is always becomes a philosophical question: Is do they need to know that kind of stuff, Mike? You know, and I, I remember, you know, without trying to get anyone in trouble, I remember uh, seeing, uh, you know, one of those exciting live broadcasts from the All Star game, and you know, someone asked one of the All Star pitchers, "Do you know what your WHIP is? Do you know what your WAR is?" Um, and and he had no idea what they were. And the guy who asked the question, the the the, the broadcaster, was upset about that. And then genuinely just didn't understand that. And you know what? As long as that pitcher takes the man and says, I'm here to get that guy out, I don't think he needs to know a lot of his advanced stats and things like that. I, I don't understand why a player needs to know that. I think we gain more you know, by, by looking at some of the, like you said, the spin rates and things like that, and maybe trying to figure out a way to, for a pitcher to you know, use his arsenal more effectively. But you know, I, I, I have no concern whatsoever if a player looks at his batting average, doesn't look at his batting average, or values his batting average in a way that differently than how I would. I don't, as long as he's been trying to do the right things at the plate, his understanding statistics is really up to him. Yeah, and I guess it could work both ways because I agree with you. They certainly don't need to know how to calculate this stuff in their head. But uh, I remember an article uh, about Gabe Kapler, for example, with the Dodgers where some of the players in the system had low batting average and they were disappointed in their performance. And he went to them and said, well, actually, you're hitting the ball really hard. We've got your exit velocity of this. And we think you're doing a great job. And, uh, you know, that in itself kind of pumped them up and helped get their performance up. Sure, yeah, we will do stuff like that. I, it, it's, it's, I guess the one thing, like, I don't think we spend a lot of time doing is telling someone, like, like, hey, you add this all up, you know, the, the runs you're creating are good things. We'll, tell, we'll explain some why they're having a good year. We'll, you know, we certainly you know, are a team that, that, along with focusing on getting guys to hit better, also want players to be more disciplined and, and uh, you know, deliver good at-bats and then understand uh, the value of a walk and not think that a walk's a bad thing. Understand that you know, the, your goal when you step up to the plate is to not make it out. Um, and sometimes it's going to come for a walk, and a walk's a good thing. A walk is a positive piece of, of the puzzle. And so and there, there are things like that where we explain to how we feel about certain aspects of baseball and maybe change them. And, you know, we've, we've, we've spent a lot of time explaining to our players top to bottom 
uh, how we shift and why we shift. And, and, you know, we even shift on a basic level in the minor league. So when those players come up uh, to the big leagues, they've, they've shifted already and they're comfortable standing on the other side of the bag, for example. Now, I'm curious about your approach in terms of, of trying to gain advantages. Uh, and like you said with the StatCast data, it's so new and so massive, it seems like there's clear efficiencies for the team that figure that out. On the other hand, looking at the front office world today as compared to even 10 years ago, if you were to think about a quote-unquote replacement level of front office executives, just in terms of the, the sheer brain power we have now, is it that much harder to get ahead than it was? Um, yeah, we talk about this a lot, like like you know, how big are our advantages really? And you know, I think there was a time where, uh, you know, for right or for wrong, people thought of, of certain teams as being maybe more forward-thinking or, or more backwards-thinking. And I really think we've reached the point where everybody's forward-thinking. And it's, it's funny, you know, even the Kansas City Royals, who just won the World Series, there's a lot of people out there talking about how, you know, this was a win for the old school. And, you know, obviously, <laughs> their they're, they're, they're great GM, Dayton Moore, comes from a scouting background. and, and uh, But at the same time, you know, they have more analysts on their staff than the Houston Astros. And so, yeah, I think the, the the smart teams, which are now really all 30, are teams that are valuing the scouting information and valuing the analyst information and are marrying them both and they make the decisions. And, and again, every team is doing that now. Yeah, and, and I know you kind of touched on this before, and I know you're not going to give specifics, and I wouldn't ask you to, but there is, a, in your mind, a quote-unquote like next big thing out there. For example, Mike Fast, who is with the Astros and was also hired from baseball perspectives, he's probably best known publicly for his work on pitch framing, uh, and that's a big part that got him a job. There's there's something else like that that's not really known publicly in your mind that if kind of was out there would really revolutionize things? Boy, revolutionize a big word. Well, yeah. <laughs> there, are, there are there are certainly things that we've looked at, or we're looking at, and have looked at um, that certainly change the way we value players, or change the way we think about the value of players, or change the way we project players in the future. You know, even we we are a team that, and most teams do this as well, but are really trying to keep the two sides not separate, but trying to merge the two sides and have these two sides together. So. You know what? What I've learned from from Mike Fast and his team and musician development, I think, has made me a better scout. At the same time, you know, we try to return the favor. I, you know, I can, I'm not going to get into details, like you said, but I have a specific project right now that, that Mike's working on. And you know, at a certain point, he felt like he had some fines and he felt like he figured some things out. But what he wanted was someone to bounce that off of, and those are the scouts. Those are the guys who you know, are going to literally hundreds of games a year. So. Before he went any further, we stopped what he was doing. We had him sit down with some of our scouts and, and show him, and they can chime in on what he was doing and, and talk about what they're seeing and their experiences as players even, which, which I think helps him as well to you know, maybe alter a couple of things or focus in the right way. So let's talk about the Astros specifically for a minute. It's been, I guess, about three and a half years or so since you left Baseball Perspectives for the Astros, and um, obviously a little bit of a rough time for the Astros the first couple of years and very successful last season. What is the reality been compared to what your expectations would have been when you left to work for you know a real major league team? Um, you know, I think the reality has been better than the expectation. To be honest with you, um, you know, I've, I've had a really great time. I've been tasked with with maybe more than I thought I would be, which is which is where one of the good things comes from. Um, I've seen a ton of baseball. I, I was able to, you know, I was in New York for our wild card win this fall, which was a, a real thrill. So, yeah, it, it's been a great experience, and it certainly has been eye-opening, and you know, I still feel, you know, even here on, you know, whatever it is, January 6, 2016, I guarantee you somewhere in the next, you know, five to ten days, something will come up, and I'll go, oh, that's how that works, because I don't know yet. And I think that's another part of the, that's really exciting. It's just that, Every day, I think you're learning something here. 
And I think one thing that's interesting about the team's success is when people think about the Astros, they think the top draft picks, they think kind of selling off all the veterans and rebuilding, and they're certainly a big part of that. But I also look at the roster, and, and a lot of it's from guys who were there uh, and really took a big step forward. Uh, Dallas Keuchel, for example, was pretty rough his first few years, and now he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. Jose Altuve, I remember being kind of looking at him almost as a good player on a bad team type, and now he's arguably the best second baseman in baseball. Uh, so I'm curious about the steps forward guys like that have taken, if, if, if you know about it. It's got to be more than just hard work on their part, right? Is it a member of the scouting staff, you know, identifying something, or what's really what's really helped them kind of push ahead to that next level? No, I would, I would love to tell you. I'd love to give you some great story, but my answer really is, and this might have said, my answer really is it's hard work on their part. And and you're talking about two of the hardest workers I've ever seen. Um, you know, Dallas Keuchel, you got to give Dallas Keuchel all the credit in the world. I don't think you, know, you could go through all of our databases and you wouldn't find a single scouting report that told you Dallas Keuchel's going to be an ace, that Dallas Keuchel's going to win a Cy Young Award, because those they don't exist. You know, he was seen as a, a guy who threw a ton of strikes, could battle it with, with so-so stuff and, and be a, a decent back of the end back end starter, you know, a number four, number five guy. And, you know, the person who changed that is Dallas Keuchel. And it's, his work ethic is just tremendous. He's, he's a, a, you know, a real role model for the rest of the staff, just a leading by example. You know, the work he puts in between starts, the work he puts in on game day, you know, and, and the way he goes after hitters is really something special. But he also improved. You know, he went from a guy, uh, you know, who – Maybe had a little, was a little light on velocity to a guy who may still be there, but had real secondary weapons with not only his changeup but a really excellent slider. You got to give him that credit. Uh, at the same time, Altuve, you know, no one works harder than Jose Altuve. It's unbelievable how much this guy wants to hit. You got to kick him out of the batting cage sometimes. And so, you know, I'd love to give you a story about how you have know, the smart Astros did something great to turn these guys <laughs> into the, the superstars they are. But you know, Dallas Keuchel and Jose Altuve turned themselves into the superstars they are. Uh, that's great stuff. Now, Kevin, last question, uh, and this is a topic I could talk to you about for about three hours, but I don't think we really have the time for that. Carlos Correa, it seems a little unfair to say that a guy who was the number one overall pick was underrated, maybe, but it almost seems that way because he just turned 21 in September, and I think he might be the best shortstop in baseball right now. Has he exceeded even what your expectations were? Um, I, I think our expectations were through the roof, and, and I think he's at least met them, but you know, obviously he's exceeded them when you think about the fact that you know, you're talking about a guy who, you know, at his age was hitting third every day on a playoff baseball team. Uh, you know, that's, that's the rarest of the rare. And the talent's incredible. Uh, the makeup's absolutely off the charts. And he's another guy who, you know, this guy puts his work in, and, and you've got to give him the credit for, you know, he's still not satisfied with where he is as a baseball player. He's a guy who's going to get better, and it scares you when you think about, you know, on your standard you know, aging curve in the way most people think about how players age. He's still six to eight years away from his prime. Um, so, so this guy could be uh, an incredible player. I'm, I've told people that, you know, you know, they ask me how good he is. I say, you know, I guarantee you. By the time you know, when I die, the Astros will never have a better prospect than Carlos Correa. <laughs> well, that's high praise. You know, he's, he's that good. I mean, he's it's a once in a generation kind of player. You know, we're very, very just thrilled to have him. Yeah, he is fascinating and just so much fun to watch. Uh, Kevin Goldstein, Director of Pro Scouting for the Houston Astros. Really interesting stuff. Thanks for your time. So much fun. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me now is MLB.com's new Pirates reporter, Adam Barry. Adam, how are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being with us. Congratulations on uh, the full-time job. Uh, it's going to be Thank good you. stuff out of Pittsburgh this year. So I'm curious about the Pirates. Pirates have obviously, after a long period of, of struggling have been very good the last couple of years but i feel like 
even though the front office may have earned the benefit of the doubt, the Pirates fan base maybe is not on board with that so far this winter. Really, they've added Ryan Vogelsong, John J. So, and Jonathan Neese. Uh, what's your take on, on both the direction and what the fans are feeling about the Pirates winner so far? I can definitely tell you that the fan, your assessment of the fans' reaction is pretty accurate. Um, it, it just hasn't been the moves people expected. You know, you have the core that they have with McCutcheon and Marte and Cole. You know, sort of these rare players to have under team control with the core that they have, and people expect them to capitalize on it, and they expect them to spend more to you know, take advantage of what they do have. Um, and, and they haven't done that. They have spent more. Um, you know, their payroll will be higher in part because they're, um, you know, they're paying raises out to some of these guys who are under control, guys like McCutcheon and Liriano and Marte. Um, so it, it hasn't necessarily matched expectations just because the, the names haven't been all that flashy. But, I mean, when you look at the people they're bringing back, like the core is still there. Most of the players on the team that won 98 games last <laughs> year, they'll be back. So there, there's reason for optimism. It's just, you know, it's the offseason. It's time to criticize the moves that are made in front of you, I guess. Always. But is it, is it your opinion? And obviously we're just speculating here, but are the Pirates doomed to yet another wild card game? Can the fans actually take that? Ooh, I don't know if they can take it, but I'm afraid that may be their destination either way. Um, and I, I think they could possibly get past the Cardinals, although they're certainly not going anywhere no matter who they've lost. But the Cubs, to me, have just turned into such a juggernaut in this division, not only uh, for the immediate short term, but then potentially for the long term, just with the young core that they have. But, I mean, you know, the Pirates did win 98 games last year, and you can make an argument that, you know, given Andrew McCutcheon's slow start and the team's collective slow start and their terrible record against the Reds and Brewers, that they may have underachieved even a little bit. So there's some room for improvement there. And one of the hallmarks of this recent turnaround for the Pirates is a ground ball pitching staff. I looked this up mm-hmm. today. We have ground ball data since 2002, which is uh, 420 team seasons. Three of the top four are the last three seasons of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, so they replaced uh, in, on the right side of the infield Neil Walker and Pedro Alvarez. Neither a particularly strong defender, and I thought maybe that's where they could improve run prevention, uh, getting strong defenders behind a ground ball pitching staff. But Josh Harrison, who has been a very good player but doesn't have a ton of experience at second base, and then at first base, a combination of Mike Morrison and John Jaso, whose best positions are probably DH and catcher, uh, it's, it's not exactly what I expected. Do you think that Were you surprised that maybe they didn't prioritize the glove there more? Uh, Josh Harrison, to me, was pretty well expected just because there were some hints last year. Clint Hurdle had mentioned that, you know, when we would ask about Josh Harrison moving around and being that utility guy like, you know, Ben Zobris Light, you know, we said, was there any position that you would like to see him play on a regular basis? And this was after he'd kind of move off, moved off a third base. And Clint said several times, you know, I'd really like to see him at second. So you kind of saw the writing on the wall that they were going to move him there. He's athletic. I think he can field the position well. The first base situation is a little odd because, you know, you saw what happened with Pedro Alvarez last year, a guy trying to learn the position, and so they're going to replace him with another guy who's going to be learning the position in John Jaso. But, I mean, he's he's probably more athletic than Pedro. He, the, the catcher to first base transition has been made and made well before by some other guys, Buster Posey, Mike Napoli, who have played the position relatively well uh, defensively. So I think overall, if you look at the collective infield defense, it's going to be better simply because – Pedro Alvarez is gone, and <laughs> Neil Walker, for all of his offensive gifts, wasn't necessarily the most mobile defender at second. 
Well, we can't talk about the Pirates without asking a couple of questions about uh, Andrew McCutcheon. So right. last year, and I think you touched on this, he, his April was uh, the worst month of his entire career, as I remember. Mm-hmm. And everybody kind of thought it was about his sore knee. And it was kind of one of our early stat cast successes was looking at his exit velocity. And so that first month, he was hitting the ball 87.8 miles an hour off the bat. Every month after that, almost 92 miles an hour off the bat. Uh, he went from being 19% below average at the plate to 56% above average at the plate. Huge difference. And so my question right. for you is everyone kind of put that on the knee, but he never really had a, knee, a procedure or anything that I'm aware of. Did the knee just magically get better while playing on it? Or, you know, what, what's the cause of that big change for him? Yeah, he was pretty private about that really all year. And even when we spoke to him this offseason at Pirate Fest, he was pretty quiet about what was actually the problem. But he did admit he wasn't fully himself. Uh, in April, and we saw that in spring training. He sat out uh, more days than usual. Um, he was taken out with a very hockey-type injury, like lower body soreness or something like that. And so we knew that there was going to be a potential injury. It was just a question of would it heal over time naturally? Would he need a procedure? And he never needed anything, no surgery, not even in the off season. So I think it was just something he kind of had to play through at first and then eventually work through and you know treat with maintenance and all that uh, throughout the course of the rest of the season. But you know, once he got healthy, he turned back into MVP-type Andrew McCutcheon. So. Now, there's been some whispers that he might not actually be the best defensive center fielder on the team because Starling Marte is out there playing left, and he's phenomenal in left. And you look at defensive runs mm-hmm. saved, it's 24 on the plus side for Marte, negative 8 for McCutcheon. UZR kind of says the same thing. Uh, has there been actually any discussion of that move, or is this just something that's going to you know kind of live in the numbers realm? We actually asked Clint Hurdle about that at the winter meetings, in fact, and it's not something that they've really considered. I mean, it's Part of it's probably like a status thing with McCutcheon being the the franchise player and the center fielder and all that. But the other thing is that left field at PNC Park is a pretty tough assignment for anybody. So you could argue that having your best outfielder in that particular position, especially when McCutcheon is flanked essentially by two center fielders with Gregory Polanco and Marte, kind of protects him a little bit, whereas you leave Marte with all that wide expanse and the notch out in left center, and uh, you kind of help him him and Polanco can kind of guard McCutcheon to a certain extent by, by playing the corners. No, that's a pretty interesting outlook. Uh, the, the other idea about McCutcheon is what's his future? He's got three years and $41 million left on what might be the team-friendliest contract in baseball history. Uh, he'll be entering his age 32 season, his first year as a free agent, unless they extend him first. And I know, you know, obviously Pirates fans want him to be the next Clemente, the next great Pirate who's there forever, but there's obvious risks with extending somebody for big money into mid to late 30s. And if they don't, do they have to trade him? Uh, what's the latest on that? There hasn't been a lot of public conversation about that. Obviously, McCutcheon has made it clear that he would be fine playing out his career in Pittsburgh. I think the Clemente thing is important to him, not only um, you know, particularly being in this city, but just Clemente's impact was partially strengthened based on the fact that you could identify him with one team, with one city, and, and, and everything like that. So I don't necessarily know if we're quite there yet where that's going to become a boiling point, but even – even last spring training, it was brought up, you know, is it time to talk about an Andrew McCutcheon extension? The team made it clear that that's maybe not necessarily a front-burner issue right now because there is still time. There's time to see, you know, how Austin Meadows comes along, how the next group of core players comes along behind McCutcheon and what the market bears. I mean, Lord knows, given the way it's gone this offseason, <laughs> he's going to demand a contract the Pirates probably can't afford. Well, st- sticking in the outfield, you mentioned Gregory Polanco, and uh, I find him fascinating. He's only 24, and I remember, you know, even from here in New York, in 2014, everybody was screaming for the Pirates, call him up, call him up, call him up, and he comes up, and he was great for two weeks or so, and kind of struggled the rest of the season, and then his second season, he was okay. He was 
a little bit below average, a good fielder, but he was really uh, much better in the second half than the first half. Looked like he was more aggressive. Who is the real Gregory Polanco to you? It's hard to say because there was that one stretch. It was about June till the end of August, maybe, where he looked exactly like that prospect that everybody was clamoring for. I mean, he hit the ball hard. He was a threat on the bases. Um, he was patient, but also hit for a little bit of power. So I, I think you saw flashes that that could be who Polanco is for an entire season next year. And then at the end of the year, he was slowed uh, pretty significantly by a knee injury that he said he had to get a PRP injection in after the season. So you kind of wonder, you know, if we'd if we'd seen a healthy and effective Gregory Polanco from you know June until September. You know, the, the end of the season numbers would have looked a little bit different, and I think there would be maybe more optimism uh, heading into heading into this season for Polanco. So I think he can certainly be that guy. I don't know if he's McCutcheon. I don't even know if he's Marte, but I think he, there's still a very productive and valuable player in there. Well, you mentioned health, and that kind of brings me to Francisco Cervelli. And when I when I first said I wanted to talk to, about him, I was like, well, he had a breakout season, and then I started looking at it, and he actually, it was similar to what he usually was. He's always been an on-base guy. He's always been a good pitch framer. He just stayed healthy, you know. And is, was there something more to that to him than health? Because he had a really fantastic season for the Pirates. No, I think it was 100% health. I mean, that was what he said his goal was coming into the year, was just that he wanted to show what he could do being the pretty much everyday catcher. And I think he did that. His his numbers dropped off a little bit from where they were in, you know, in June. And like you said, it's not like he, he broke out because he'd proven that he could do that in a limited sample before. Um, but I think just consistency, consistency was the key for him. And the Pirates did a really good job last year. They took a lot more of a sort of data-driven approach into health and rest patterns and things like that. And I think that really benefited uh, Cervelli quite a bit. I just filled out a top 10 catchers ranking for MLB Network for a show we're doing soon. And Cervelli came in on my list about five spots ahead of Yadier Molina. So I'm really wow. looking forward to Cardinals fans just killing me on that. Uh, yeah, gotta good talk. luck with your Twitter message yeah. for the next couple months. But, and Sal Perez, too. I said i got to block the entire state of Missouri, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, we have to go to the bullpen real quick. I know everybody wants to talk about Mark, uh, Mark Melanson, uh, whether he's going to be traded or not, but he is not the most interesting Pirates reliever to me. That is Archimedes Caminero, and that's only partially because it's super fun to say Archimedes Caminero. He had the hardest slider velocity in baseball, second hardest splitter in baseball, kind of up there in fastball velocity. But he had a really interesting season because of the first half, he was more of a strikeout guy. He dropped his strikeout percentage from 26% to 19% in the second half. Shot his ground balls up from 37% to 57%. Almost two entirely different pitchers. What did you see from him, and is he, is he going to put it together next year? He actually started throwing a more of a two-seamer toward the end of the season. There was a point in, I think it was in Miami in like August, where I just I walked up to him and I noticed the velocity was down a little bit, but... Like you said, the ground balls were starting to come more often than they had been earlier in the season. I said, are you throwing a two-seamer? He's like, yeah. I was like, you're throwing a 97-mile-per-hour two-seamer. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, he did evolve. <laughs> he learned a little bit under under Ray Searage and the Pirates, uh, you know, whole entire coaching staff. He he evolved a little bit as the season went on. And I, I think he could be a valuable weapon in maybe not necessarily a setup role next year because the Pirates potentially will have that covered with Tony Watson and now Neftali Feliz. Um but I think when you can bring in a guy who could throw 100 miles an hour, put the ball on the ground, uh, th that's a really useful weapon for, for Clint Hurdle. And I'm, I'm curious to see how he takes it a step further because now this will be his – he's not doing the you know the first major league debut full season uh, thing again. So it, I'll, I'll be curious to watch him as well, and not just because it's fun to say Archimedes, Euclidus, Kim, and <laughs> It's super fun. Great stuff. Adam Berry, PittsburghPirates.com, MLB.com, beat reporter. Adam, thanks so much. Yes, thank you.
Thanks to my guests, Adam Barry of MLB.com and Kevin Goldstein of the Houston Astros. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.